You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. So welcome everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is the story of the Australian consumer. I will introduce my co-panelists in a second, but what we are going to be talking about, we're going to take a quick look at the Australian economy, and then we're going to zoom in and look at what's happening with the Australian consumer. How are they changing their behaviors and what is the implication of that for companies? I am joined today by Jenny Child. She is a partner in our Sydney office. She leads McKinsey's consumer and retail practice across Australia and New Zealand. I am also joined by Joseph Teswick, known as JT to some. He is a senior partner out of the Sydney office and he leads McKinsey's operations practice across all of Asia. Jenny, let me just start with you. I detect a slight American accent. How uh, did an American end up in Australia, if I'm allowed to start with a personal question? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Oliver. Yes, I uh, am American, born and raised, and I've been in Australia about five years. So my story as a good consultant that I am, I followed a client who took a job in Melbourne, and I started doing the travel back and forth, decided that was unsustainable and eventually made the, the jump over here, but firmly planted in Australia now. Uh, got an Australian husband and three-and-a-half-year-old child. Excellent, and we're very happy that you did uh, follow that passion, uh, Jenny. Listen, I'm going to start asking both of you the same question. If you look at the last three months with the COVID crisis, what has surprised you most that you've seen over the last few months? Uh, JT? Yeah, two things, Oliver. First is actually how quickly Australia and New Zealand, touch wood, got on top of the health side of the COVID-19 crisis. It only took each country about two weeks to go from their peak to about a tenth of that peak. But conversely, how profound are the second order effects on the economy? So for me, that's the first surprise or paradox. Uh, and then the second one for me in our sort of retail and consumer sector is just how much cooperation we saw in the sector to keep the nation fed and watered during the difficult times, uh, and then the cooperation between those uh, industry participants and, and government as well. Jenny? I'll build on something that JT said about the response in Australia. I, I think everyone knows by now that from a health efficacy point of view, we've done really well. But what surprised me is if you look at how we've tracked consumer sentiment through that, despite how well we've done on that and how much the government has pumped into you know, really supporting the economy, average sentiment has actually been middle of the pack versus rest of the world. And that just caused us to look deeper into, you know, the why behind that is as people who love to understand the consumer. That's been one thing that's been surprising and just thinking about how, you know, brittle the confidence is in Australia and how to navigate that over the next six months is really important. The second thing that surprised me was around digital, probably a very common theme throughout the world that we've seen this big digital uptake. But with consumers here, there's always been this debate as to why we haven't seen more e-commerce in this country. We've been about 8% penetration in retail for a long time. So the really massive shift to lots of people jumping online and starting to do their normal course of business throughout their day digitally has been a pleasant surprise. 
Thank you. We're going to come back to all of these points a little bit later in this uh, podcast, but let's start with JT. I think you started talking about the Australian economy. Now, my understanding is that Australia is going to dip into recession for the first time in just about 30 years. Uh, can you say a little bit more about the Australian economy and the context surrounding it? Sure. So you're right, Oliver. Uh, when the June figures come out, we will be in a recession after having shrunk 0.3% in March. It'll be more than that in June. Yeah, and that's a recession which is in, you know, for most of our colleagues, the whole of their adult lifetime. They haven't seen one in, in those 29 years. And there's a few things underneath that which may be a worrying puzzle and set the context for the future of the Australian consumer. So yes, unemployment's up. It's up from five till seven percent so far. But underemployment, you know, those that would like to be working more is actually up from eight percent to fourteen percent. And the other thing kind of hidden under the surface a little bit is just how many businesses, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics makes it more than 70%, who've reported decreased revenue, uh, 50% have applied for wage subsidies, 50% have reduced hours for their staff. So there's something lurking under the surface and some uncertainty also what happens when the music stops for the government stimulus as well. From a long distance, Australia seems to actually have been doing better. But, you know, what you're describing is that there's a pretty profound economic downdraft, if I'm allowed to call it that. What is the government doing to improve? What are the companies doing to turn around? Yeah, so at the moment, you'll see the consumption line in Australia is holding up okay. Uh, but, you know, what you see is that the government is at the moment injecting round numbers, Australian dollars, 20 billion or so into the economy every month through a variety of programs that are keeping people employed through the dip that COVID-19 has created. Now, that can't go forever. It's slated to end in September. And then you think if some of that either unwinds or slows down at about that time, are we really sure as a nation that we're going to bounce back as quickly as we would like? I think people don't know. We have to be humble, but you use the term downdraft. I think that's a, that's a real risk. What we've seen in a number of other countries is that the crisis has hit kind of quite differently across different sectors. Is that the case in Australia? Which ones are on either side of the curve, so to speak? That's right. Oliver. It's what you might expect when people need to shelter in place or stay at home, which is about half the unemployment effect we've seen so far is across retail, accommodation, food services and sectors like that. The interesting thing, though, is that the impact is felt across businesses, large and small, whether it's less than 20 employees or the mega institutions. Most, if, if not all, are seeing you know, some difficulties on the revenue line. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Jenny, if you don't mind, let's uh, shift and start talking a little bit about the consumers. So why don't we start by looking at how have you seen the consumer behaviors change over the course of this pandemic? Yeah, it's very similar to other parts of the world. Uh, the big theme being that we're seeing shifts, as you as you said, not left turns or U-turns in consumer behavior that, that won't change overnight. A few of the things we're seeing here, I mentioned um, an acceleration of some trends like digital already. That's definitely something we've seen. And I like to split digital into two types. We've seen an uptick in consumption of content and the way I get information and connect with other people. 
And then we've seen an uptick in commerce, e-commerce as well. The question about this one is, where's the stickiness in that? And certainly in the consumption, you know, people's ease in the way they connect with each other on digital, you know, whether that be work or personal life or education, uh, we think there's some real stickiness around that. Um, Health and wellness has been another trend that we've seen an acceleration in just that focus of how do I set up my gym at home now if that's where my, my primary access is and keep that part of my life going. We have seen the trend of where is the central access in my life shifting more to the home and the community. Now, part of that is because of lockdown, of course. But the real question on this one is, is well, how much will that continue, even if it continues in 10 or 20 percent of my life that used to be outside the home, but now it's inside the home? That, of course, has big impacts on businesses and, you know, CBD districts where people are used to seeing a lot of traffic during the week. And then lastly, I'll just say, you know, we've seen the really early recessionary type behaviors start to kick in, things around price sensitivity, you know, looking for private label, looking for discount channels and thinking a little bit more deliberately about how I spend my household resources so that I, you know, can preserve as much as I can going forward. Those are some of the big trends that we're seeing. And do you see any difference in behavior between segments of the consumers? Absolutely. And this is something we're digging into in our next round of consumer research pretty heavily uh, because it's absolutely the point. There's never just one segment of consumer. And so all those things I described, you know, digital and community and how I think about price sensitivity, if you start to split consumers um, in very basic segments about how they weathered the storm, meaning you've got some people who have lost their job, as JT described, now 7% of Australians, some of them have just lost income. That's their own segment. And if you look at the underlying data of how they're reacting to this crisis, if you will, and this ongoing household spending, a lot more price sensitivity hitting that segment. You also have segments who are really worried about health, and that becomes the primary thing that they're focused on for their family. That's a smaller segment, but that does impact the way they think about travel and the way they're spending their money going forward. So certainly segments really important to consider. Yeah. I mean, the other one, Oliver, I might add, is just the age demographics, where you know a lot of these digital trends historically have started in younger age generations, whether it's Generation Z or millennials. But some of this has been forced on all Australians, uh, and we expect some of it to stick, you know, whether it's the you know, person who's you know, in their later years of life forced to try online shopping for the first time to get a food delivery, whether it's someone in any age forced to do a telehealth consultation with their doctor. These are things which maybe you wouldn't have had the experiment were it not for COVID-19, but some of those people won't go back. And so it's interesting to see how it spreads across ages as well. Yeah. And from what I saw from some of your numbers is that you know, a significant part of those populations, for example, are, are telehealth. They are reacting very positively to telehealth. They, they actually are very satisfied with the experience. Now, let me uh, zoom in on something you said earlier, Jenny, which is the penetration of digital and, and, and retail sales. You said, I think I heard you say it was only 8%. Now, how has that changed? And are you seeing this accelerate? Do you expect that to stay? The latest numbers we've seen show about a 10 percentage point increase. Massive, right? So this is where the whole theme around we've seen decades play out in days really comes to life um, because it took a decade or so to build up to that 8%. And then within a few months, we went uh, to about 18%. Uh, will that stick is, of course, the big question, because in order for it to stick, 
as doors reopen as they are now, um, if the experience for consumers is not as good online as it is in store, and that's something that they're seeking, then we will see a flow back to the store, which we have a, a little bit already, although those online numbers are still pretty buoyant. So I think the real question will be around the supply. You know, do we see the investments in e-commerce from companies that have delayed that investment over the past few years? Will we see that accelerate and therefore the experience online really get better? And how have you seen companies react to this change? Are they on the ball, so to speak? And what do the ones that are ahead of the game do compared to the ones that are a little bit less, that are a little bit more behind? We've seen lots of good movement with some of our clients and some retailers who are realizing that it's really table stakes. It's going to be table stakes going forward. And the, the demand numbers we've seen for e-commerce and just that digital consumption definitely has made a lot of players realize that they've got to go there. They've got to meet the consumer there. And a lot of them talking about their rebirthing into the, the new normal, the next normal, being their omni-channel strategy in a big way. And people have talked about it for, for years and years, but now I think we've seen real action. And the grocery retailers are a good example of that, where you saw a two-week period the demand was so high in the early days of lockdown that they literally crashed the website. They couldn't fulfill the orders. The biggest issue was the fulfillment model wasn't set up to sustain that level of demand. And they moved really quickly in partnership with their suppliers and with their logistic partners to actually get up and running again and create something that was more sustainable. So I think across different retail sectors, we'll see lots more action like that. Yeah, the thing I'd add, uh, Oliver, is it really takes some courage in these times because, as Jenny says, you've got to skate to where your consumer's demand is. But at the moment, for you know most, if not all, born bricks and mortar retailers, a basket that goes online is a you know, margin dilutive basket rather than a margin accretive basket, given the relative economics of in-store versus delivery. Uh, so that means you're actually betting on those customers sticking uh, and becoming more profitable once you make the required investments. And that takes courage if you're a business leader, even if you know it's the right thing to do uh, in the short term. You know, it's actually a little tricky. And Tommy, you mentioned some of the struggles were just keeping up with the online, let me call it online infrastructure. What about the supply chain that goes to deliver all of these products to the customers? Has that been able to cope? Yeah, well, I'd say um, we're lucky in Australia that we've got enough, still, thankfully, enough manufacturing agriculture to feed the nation many times over. Um, however, we did see the bullwhip effect in supply chain, you know, panic buying of pasta, rice, toilet paper, and some other staples. And there was a period of four to six weeks where, you know, even very rational uh, men and women in Australia, uh, you know, beha behaving in a way that kind of exacerbated that panic buying. So, well, it was a bit shaky there for a while, but we are in the fortunate position of being a you know, large uh, land abundant nation who can feed itself. I might just add on the back end of that, it's caused a lot of conversation with companies to say, what do I want my supply chain of the future to look like? And how do I create resiliency for something like this that hits us again? And some of that resiliency will obviously be a little bit more control over making sure that that supply can remain intact uh, if we have another crisis. So there's lots of conversation now about what that looks like. Got it. Can we spend two minutes on the traditional large brick and mortar retailers? Because, you know, you have some very successful ones in Australia. 
How have they coped with this change? It's been a pretty tough time for, I think the penny has dropped, right? I mean, we wrote an article a year ago about the declining need for space in Australian retail. And that now has accelerated, of course. So if you think about even a few percentage points of stickiness around that online transition that we talked about earlier, the e-commerce volume that they're getting, that has a huge impact on anyone who has a large brick and mortar footprint. And so, again, the conversation there is we probably didn't weather this storm very well because lots of us shut our doors. And now is the chance to rethink what that footprint looks like, how much space will we need in the near term, in the long term, and how do we go about rationalizing and really innovating some of that space that we've held onto for a really long time. And what are some of the things you said they're innovating? What are some of the things that you've seen? What are some of the innovations that you've seen so far? I think it's early days, so probably not a lot of innovation actually in the store, but the conversations are looking at models in the U.S., for instance. And one of the clients we were talking about, how do you take Best Buy, for instance, and what they've done with their stores, which was a big box you know, framework, and they've gone through partnerships with suppliers, created store-within-a-store models. I think that's the type of innovation that we'll see start to really hit Australia. One of the other things that we've heard is how do you think about a multi-floor department store taking out one floor, right? And just using the other, you know, two or three floors that they have to totally reinvent that space, but really downsizing as it relates to to what they were before. So against that context, you know, the two of you, you talk to many CEOs, CXOs. You know, what is the advice that you give them? What do you tell them to be uh, thinking about? Well, I think, you know, you might want to ask about the specifics in a second. But the first thing we say is be bold and aim high, Oliver. And the reason is it's an empirical one, not just an emotional one. If you look at the 2008 financial crisis, to be in the top quintile as that all that transpired, you needed to have two to three times the revenue growth of your competition four or 5% cost reduction as a percentage of sales uh, and be doing more mergers, acquisitions and divestitures, even at a time where it's not easy to do so. And that's a big ask coming out of a crisis situation. So advice number one is to be bold and, and aim high. The history judges uh, those that do so really well. That's number one. What's number two? Maybe let me give you number two through some and then and Jenny might pile on. I think you know, finding every last cent of cost, uh, whether it's tactical revenue, OPEX, CAPEX is really important. Um, many will be doing that already. So the next thing I'd say is taking advanced analytics and digital to their full potential. That's often worth half as much, again, in terms of improvement than the analog levers. So it's a prize worth fighting for. Uh, the omni-retail sophistication, possibly in partnership with others or logistics players, if you're not a scale enough enterprise to do it yourself. Um, and then the last thing I might say is also, what's an agile operating model to allow you to deliver all of the above really quickly? You know, many of our clients and their CEOs are reporting a series of really good, productive, cross-functional habits that came out of the crisis. And how do you turn that from not just temporary habits, but into an institutionalized way of working uh, that you know safeguards pace against all the priorities that you're going to have to juggle. So that, that would be a handful of things. Jenny might have one or two more. 
Uh, yeah, I'll add two things to that. I think to that last point, JT, around let's look at what's really worked during this crisis. The speed of decision making and pulling together cross-functional teams is a big piece of advice uh, and a big part of the conversation that we're having with lots of clients. There's a, another element of that, which is this whole theme around coming off of autopilot. It just doesn't work anymore. We have to have our hands on the controls. And that often means how we allocate our resources. The annual budget is out the window. And every client that I have talked to is saying, how do we think about quarterly, monthly conversations as a top team and setting priorities and then resource allocation behind that in a very dynamic way? And that's going to be a big you know, new normal. The second thing is advice around unnatural collaboration. This is something that I've heard a lot of the U.S retailers talk about in hindsight, right, as they look over the last 15 years of really battling it out from a brick and mortar against Amazon and e-commerce perspective, the thing I've heard over and over is we wish we would have thought about unnatural collaborations a whole lot harder and been a whole lot bolder on that regard. So as it relates to Australian retailers and how they think about the next six months to 12 months, it's not just a game that they need to play themselves, right? That might be M&A, that might be joint ventures. Uh, but if you're a brick and mortar player and you want to get really smart and really good at e-commerce, collaborations are often a way to accelerate that. Uh, so really pushing clients to get into that mindset. If you don't mind, I'd like to explore a few of these topics a little bit more. Let me start with the last one. What is an unnatural collaboration? Let's take the example of small, medium businesses that are, you know, in the retail space. And this is where, you know, it, it's not necessarily an example that that works for big clients who can do a lot of this themselves. But they're in a world where they say, in order to get really good at e-commerce and digital marketing and all the parts and pieces of what makes me good at a good omni player, I have to make an investment that seems unsustainable. So if the digital infrastructure is something that I can co-invest in that with other small retailers, that might feel really unnatural for me to broker that conversation. But if we all put our own skin on it, right, that first mile with the consumer becomes something we can tailor and customize. But the infrastructure is something we've together invested in. I think that's a really good example of the type of innovative thinking we need to unlock. Yeah. And I'd say the same, Jenny, for the consumer goods sector in Australia on physical investment, which is if you believe we're coming into a recessionary environment with deflationary pressures on prices, one way to change is to you know, manufacture cheaper. Often that means investments in automated, flexible manufacturing that are prohibitive, even for the largest consumer goods companies in Australia, but collectively making investments, sharing the risk and return of doing so. This is something you wouldn't have done pre-COVID-19, but these types of unnatural collaborations, I agree, they should definitely be on the agenda. Let me go back to something you said, JT. You talked about agile organizations. I hear about this in many different places. What does it mean in practice in the retail and consumer world? Yeah, I think a few things. So one is really rapid reallocation of resources, be they your best people or your capital. You know, that's your two scarce resources for most companies towards priorities that can be changing at light speed if, if they weren't doing so before. Number two is a really flat method of decision-making, uh, you know, usually three, maximum four layers of the organisation, which for most retailers and consumer goods companies would currently be sitting somewhere between six and eight 
levels and the speed that comes from that. Uh, and then the third one, which I think is really meaningful, is you know rewarding people for the contribution they make to the organization's customers and to the organization itself, not by the size of your hierarchy or how many people report to you or anything like that. So you know rewarding a data scientist who writes the algorithm that personalizes assortment for customers you know, as highly as someone who might be, you know, technically more senior in the organization. Now, there's a lot more we could go into Agile, but I think that's uh, a couple of things that will uh, really help bring the pace and innovation that we expect the sector to need going forward. Got it. Analytics, and you started also talking about that, JT. So what are some of the interesting examples that you've seen uh, when it comes to companies using analytics? I don't know who wants to answer that first. No, no, let let or, me Sorry, go ahead, JT. Yeah, no, let me tell you, I'd say a few things. One thing that's interesting is, you know, everyone's uh, analytics is not the same when they talk about it. So someone might say, I'm doing analytics because I've got a good spreadsheet, that personalized range down to a cluster level of stores. You know, we'd say, actually, unless you can have dynamic range changing week to week at every single one of your outlets, you haven't exploited the full potential of the analytics. And you could say the same thing about pricing, demand forecasting, et cetera. Most of that's fairly standard. Um, the interesting thing, though, is applying analytics to different domains. So, you know, retail is a very labor-intensive uh, industry, as we all know. Um, you know, what retailers do, the best ones, is they apply analytics to how they hire their casual part-time and full-time workforce, which is often thousands of tens or tens of thousands of people. And even a small difference in, you know, retention and not having to rehire these people pays back for itself many times over. And so we find the best companies aren't just thinking about this as, well, I'll do the top five revenue use cases. They're looking at every single decision they make, regardless of whether it's about merchandising or their people or their supply chain or store site selection, et cetera, and asking how could data help us make a superior decision. And I think it's unbelievable when it all comes together. It's awesome. Got it. Jenny, anything to add on the topic of analytics? Yes, I think there's a really basic conversation that if you're in retail and consumer, analytics is all about a 360 view of the consumer. And what we see as the real gap is that requires a really scarce resource. It requires data, data that you don't have as one single organization or one single company. And and the real secret sauce, I think, in the near term to figuring this out is getting your hands on the right data sources. And you're seeing some of this happen in Australia um, and stitching it together in a way that really gives you that 360 view. And some of the trends that I started talking about that we see as acceleration or slight shifts, really being able to quantify those so that you can see all facets of consumers' lives and then start to get really smart on predicting what they're going to want, what they're going to buy, how they're going to want to buy it before they even get there. And that's the type of, you know, really basic analytic journey that many of our retail and consumer clients will be on. Thank you both. Listen, as we start to round out, any final thoughts that you care to share with the listener? JT. Yeah, I think just a final thought is, I think we should be really grateful and proud of what Australia and New Zealand has achieved with the health side of COVID-19 and cautiously optimistic for the long term, and therefore just conscious of the decisions we make about reopening both doors and wallets in the short term, I think that will be the key towards us having the best of what is a very difficult situation. Jenny? There's 
an idea around being willing to take inspiration outside of your immediate category or sector that I think is really important. And we all have a tendency to sort of hunker down and sometimes in times of crisis get even more insular than we were before, but really fighting that instinct and saying, I may be a grocery retailer, but how can I be inspired by what health and beauty retailers are doing right now? And really, you know, get into a space again to that topic of, you know, unnatural collaborations where you can be open to that. I think that's really important. Why don't we end with uh, one sentence from each of you? Any advice that you would have for a consumer or a retail executive that is uh, listening? JT. Yeah, I'd say be bold and be fast, because even if you know the answer for your industry, uh, the returns will disproportionately accrue to who gets there first. Jenny? I'll, I'll add on the boldness. I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but this is truly a once in a lifetime opportunity as a leader to do the things that in your mind you thought were never really possible. And the conversation around a rebirth, really viewing this close down and then reopen as a rebirthing opportunity, I think the agile conversation is the perfect example of we never thought we could be as cool as a digital company and be agile. But the reality is, is you've learned that you can because you started to do some of it in a time of, of need. So really take that as ammo to, to move forward and make some bold changes in the way you operate and the way you connect with consumers. Excellent. Listen, thank you both. You've both been uh, great. Let me just end by uh, quoting Jenny here, once in a lifetime, rebirthing opportunity as a leader. Those are big words, very exciting times. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody for listening in. Take care. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs>